right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the summit. And uh, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts called Movement. And uh, tonight, uh, what I want to talk to you about is how this movement, Christianity, uh, overcomes traditions. Okay? How Christianity overcomes traditions. And uh, I feel like it's important for me to make uh, maybe a distinction before we get started to say that there are good traditions and there are bad traditions. Okay? So uh, for many of you growing up, you had really good family traditions. For example, uh, maybe you uh, growing up would go see your grandma at Christmas, or maybe you would get to pick the movie that your family would go see on your birthday. Uh, in my family, my brother and I had this tradition that on Christmas Eve, uh, as we waited for Santa Claus to arrive, we would camp out in the same room and we'd watch a movie and play board games. And that was a really great tradition. I have really fond memories of that. Um, usually it would end in bloodshed because, you know, the Monopoly would get a little bit out of control. Um, I would win and, you know, my brother there, Eric, who plays drums for us, didn't really handle losing that well. And you get to say that when you're, you're the only one who has the microphone. So um, that, that was a really good tradition that I look back with fond memories and I really enjoy. And that's, that's not what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to be talking about bad traditions, okay? Bad traditions. And I'm not sure if growing up when you were in school, uh, if you ever read kind of the famous uh, short story, it's called The Lottery. And I'm not sure if you read this or not, but it's a story. It's a fictional story about a, a small rural town that hopes to have a good heart harvest every single time it's harvest time and um, they had this lottery so the family all goes together they go downtown and in downtown of their town they pull cards out of a black box and one of those cards has a dot on it and whoever draws the dot is going to be stoned to death and it's what they've been doing for the rest of as long as the town has been doing what they've been doing that's that's what's happened and as they're getting ready at the end of the story to stone another one of their neighbors, a little girl looks up at her dad and says, Daddy, like, why do we do this lottery? And he says, well, we've always done the lottery. And right there is the point of pretty much tonight, that for all of our lives, there are certain things, there are certain behaviors, there are certain traditions that were passed on to us that we've experienced, that we've done, that we all know objectively as we're having this conversation right now, bring us considerable harm. Right? We've seen it bring considerable harm on our grandparents and our parents. We've seen it bring considerable harm in our own past. We've seen it bring considerable harm to others. And yet we continue in those behaviors anyways because it's hard for us to understand any other way of life. Right? You've probably experienced this. You understand bad traditions where you continue in them anyways because you do not know kind of any other viable option for your life. For example, some of you, uh, you grew up in homes where uh, you know, dad was very passive Mom was very aggressive. You didn't like that whatsoever. You hated that. You wish dad would have stepped up and taken the lead more. You wish mom had maybe respected and chilled out a little bit and not torn dad down in front of the family. And you swore you would never be that way. And yet now you're newly married and you find yourself replicating the exact same behaviors you grew up saying you hated so very much. For some of you, um, you know, you are uh, in a, uh, a you know place where... Um, you're, you're kind of ex growing in your understanding and management of, of conflict and, and growing up, you didn't grow up in a family where conflict was handled very well. So if you didn't do very well, I mean, like dad was very angry. 
right? I mean, some of you grew up in this home. Dad was very angry, would remove affection, would punish you emotionally, would remove himself physically, and it crushed you. It tore you apart. You hated it. You swore you would never be that way. But now you're in a relationship. Now you're married. Now you manage people. Now you, two of your friends, are recognizing I have the tendency to multiply the exact same behaviors, even though I know they bring considerable harm to the people around me that matter the most. Some of you, you're not even married yet, and you're trying to figure this out from a dating perspective, and you've got enough of a dating resume now to know what works and what doesn't work, right? You've kind of experienced what happens if I date these kinds of guys. I know what happens if I date this guy because we've gotten together and broken back up a dozen times, right? Like anybody ever done that before? And all of a sudden you get a text from that guy out of nowhere, right? Like, hey, would you like to grab coffee and hang out because I'd really like to maintain our friendship, and you know exactly what that means, right? You know how it's going to go. You know where it's going to lead. You know what maintain the friendship means. And instead of ignoring the text, what do you like? You're like, yeah, like what Starbucks do you think we could meet at? And, and you know exactly where you're headed. You continue in those negative behaviors, even though you know exactly where they're going to lead. Right? We all know what it's like to understand a certain pattern of behavior is going to lead us down the negative path, and we continue in them anyways because we don't know any other way. I mean, why is it for us who grew up in alcoholic environments, we are the most likely ones to multiply that addiction? Why is it that for we who grew up in dysfunctional families, we are the most likely to multiply that dysfunction? Why is that? It's because negative traditions have a far stronger hold on our lives than we would ever care to admit. Now, I'm not saying all that to scare you or depress you or make this the world's saddest sermon you've ever heard in your entire life. And here's the deal. For some of you, this isn't your family, right? Some of you grew up in great homes. I know there's probably some parents here, and I'm not saying for you this is necessary. I'm not saying this is everybody, but here's what I'm willing to bet, is that for most of you, I'm speaking to you right now. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, and you want to break the cycle. And here's what you need to know is that tonight's story, the story that we just read, is about just that. What you're going to meet is two men from two very different backgrounds, a a Jewish man and a Roman soldier. And they couldn't have anything in common other than the fact that they both are trying to break free uh, of terrible traditions that their culture, that their upbringing, that their family imposed upon them and said, you are going to walk down this path, even though for multiple generations this has led to nothing but heartbreak and despair for our people. And here's what's going to happen is Jesus is going to step in and he's going to move. And through the power of the gospel, he's going to say, no, you are going to blaze a new trail and you are going to write a completely different story with your life. And here's what I believe. I believe that this story is meant to be your story as well. If I'm talking to you right now, I really believe it can happen. I believe with my entire heart. I've been burdened this whole week for those of you I'm talking to right now. And so I pray that you'll go in depth in terms of what we're learning here. Now, let's uh, look the first person that we're going to meet, the first character in the story is a guy named Cornelius. And uh, we're going to meet him in verse 1, but what we're going to learn about Cornelius is he has to overcome the tradition of performance. Okay, the tradition of performance. When I say the tradition of performance, what you need to understand about Cornelius was uh, he is a Roman. And in Roman culture, big, prominent uh, society, what they said is, is if I perform, I will be blessed. If I perform, God will take care of me. If I do enough, life in every conceivable way will go exactly the way I want it to go. 
Now, here's what's interesting when I introduce you to Cornelius, is not only was he raised in an environment where uh, performance was paramount, but he was actually really good at this as well. This, this is the funny thing. He was really, really good at this. Now, look at, look at verse 1 as I introduce you to uh, Cornelius. So, uh, at Caesarea. So, he lives in a town called Caesarea, named after Caesar, prominent town, uh, a city you would want to live in. It was on the water, had a theater, you could go to the beach, great city to live in. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Now, Luke only gives us the first name here. And any time we, we just mention anybody and we only give the first name, what do you know? You know that person is really important, right? If I was like, hey, I bumped into LeBron the other day, you're not like, LeBron who? You know, you're like, LeBron James, you saw LeBron James, right? Because if we introduce somebody only by their first name, we know they're very important. And so Cornelius here is only given his first name, and so we know he's very important as well. So he lives in Caesarea, his name is Cornelius, and he is a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So he's not just a Roman, he's a Roman soldier. And he's not just a Roman soldier, but he is in leadership of the Roman army. He oversees about 100 soldiers and uh, commands them and and leads them. So so very, very important. Look at this, verse 2. A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So so here's what we've learned about uh, this guy Cornelius in the first two verses. Not only is he one of the most important men in one of the most important nations in one of the most important cities that you could ever know, but here's the deal. He's also charitable and spiritual. This guy is incredible. This is the type of guy that if he lived in Denver today, he would be on the cover of 5280 Magazine as our city's man of the year. This guy was incredible. His performance was astounding. And what's interesting to me is not just that, but what happens next. What happens next is God actually appears to Cornelius in a vision. And you know what's interesting? He doesn't come to him and say, oh my gosh, I've seen your performance. You've knocked me off my, uh, off my feet. I, I just can't believe how incredible you are. You know what he says? He says, I'm not astounded by what you need to do but I'm going to tell you what more you need to do. He comes to him and he says, you know what? Your performance is not enough. Let me tell you about the performance of a person you really need to understand. Look at this in verse 5, actually. He says to him, he says, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. And why would God tell him to find Peter? Because Peter is the apostle of Jesus who can tell Cornelius about Jesus, Jesus Christ, the man who performed perfectly so that Cornelius could be loved, changed, and known by God. Isn't it astounding? Here's this man who's been told his entire life, if you perform, you will be blessed. He performs in such an incredible, incredible way. And God shows up and you know what he says? It's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. Your performance is insufficient. You need to point and to look to a performance outside you, the person of Jesus Christ. What you see right here is that for Cornelius in most areas of his life performance was sufficient but in the most important area of his life it was insufficient right you tracking with me in most areas of his life Cornelius's astounding performance was sufficient it got him a great city to live in it got him a great leadership position he's probably making bank he's very influential he's very well known but when it came to the most important area being known, loved, and changed by God. God says, I find all of your performance lacking. Go and find and learn about Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. If you are normal whatsoever, you think exactly the same way Cornelius thinks. You you think that uh, my performance will lead to blessing in my 
life, right? And so what's dangerous about this is it actually works in probably like 98% of your life. That, that's what's kind of crazy about this, right? So um, many of you grew up in a home that if you did perform, things went a lot better for you, right? Th- you didn't perform, it did not go well, right? Mom starts counting, dad starts making threats, it would not go well. But if you performed, you did well in school, and you did your chores, and you did what you were supposed to do, parents loved you, they paid for things, they took care of you, and everything, right? So it worked. The same thing in your job, right? Like you perform in school, you get into college, you perform there, you get into grad school, you perform there, you get a job, you perform there, you make a good living. So in the vast majority of your life, you performing actually does work. But here's the deal is the tremendous danger is that for people like you and for people like me, is we can go without really recognizing that our performance is insufficient in the most important areas of our lives. And so you've done this before, right? You've done this where you recognize that you grew up in a home uh, that was tremendously angry, maybe even violent. And your grandpa, your grandpa was violent and your dad was violent and you're recognizing you have violent tendencies inside yourself as well. And so what do you do? You say, okay, well, if I can just try really hard, maybe if I meditate a lot and maybe if I read the right books and maybe if I talk to the right experts and if I get the right counsel, that dysfunction in my heart will disappear. Maybe for some of you, you you do this with a religious twist, right? So so maybe you've had a long resume of bad relationships again and again and again and again, and you just sprinkle a little bit of spirituality on it, right? You're like, okay, um, I'm going to start praying, and I'm going to start reading my Bible, and I'm going to start going to church, and I'll stop doing this stuff, and I'll start doing this stuff, and, and all of a sudden I'll just pop that in the oven, and now you know, God's just going to pop a dude who looks just like Channing Tatum, loves me just like Jesus, and it is going to go tremendously well for me. That's the exact same way of thinking. All you're doing is talking about God occasionally there. So, so here's the deal is you think that because your performance has been sufficient in about 98% of your life, it'll be sufficient for 100% of your life. But here's the catch. It's insufficient for the most important areas of your life. And you know this. I don't even have to convince you of this. You know this. You know that what worked to get you a good job does not work to kill the anger in your heart that explodes in the worst moments on the people that you care about the most. You know that what worked for you to thrive and do life in this incredible city the way you are now doesn't work to you finally meeting a guy who loves you and cherishes you and respects you and leads you as Jesus would intend. I mean, and this is common sense, isn't it right? If I'm trying to heal a dysfunction that's inside of me, I need a power greater than me to do that work, right? I mean, you can believe anything about God, but that's just plain common sense. We know that for the vast majority of our lives, our performance will work, right? I mean, you can be an atheist and you can be a fantastic architect who makes bank. But when it comes to the most important areas of your life, talking love and meaning and purpose and a relationship with God, God says the same thing to us as he says to Cornelius, I find it lacking. The natural question then is, what do we do with that? I mean, is it hopeless? Is it, I mean, if a guy like this 
can't just earn his way to God. Can none of us, you're right, none of us can. But that's why in this story, God points Cornelius away from his performance to the perfect performance of Jesus. This is the heart of what we as Christians believe, the gospel. When I say gospel, I just mean good news. And it's the declaration of not what you do for God. It's what God already did for you 2,000 years ago. Jesus lived, he died, he resurrected, he ascended, and he did so because he could perfectly perform. He could do for you what you could not do for yourself. Earn your way back to God. And I'm telling you, we try all sorts of ways to fix our most serious problems that have existed in our families for multiple generations, right? We try religion and irreligion. We try prayer and we try reading. We try education and we try strength. And it fails again and again and again and again and again. And why? Because those are the areas of your life where your performance is insufficient. But the good news of the gospel is there's one whose performance is sufficient. And Jesus Christ lived, died, and resurrected so he could do for you what you could not do for yourself. And so what we do in in light of a wake of a man who is so like us, let, let me just be super practical. You know what you do? Some of you stop trying so hard. I know that's kind of crazy for me to say because, you know, some of you are new to church and you're used to a guy standing up here and being like, well, do these things and don't do these things. And if you do these things, your life will just be peachy. And I'm not saying that whatsoever. What I'm saying is for some of you, you need to stop trying so hard and you need to step off your performance treadmill and you, want to, you need to stop believing that you can do things of the greatest meaning and substance that you were never created to do. You don't have a resume to do things like that, but Jesus Christ does. And you need to stop resting so much on what you can do. You need to start believing and trusting and understanding and applying what Jesus has done for you and rest in that and believe that and follow that and believe that even though there is this incredible dysfunction inside my heart, Inside of me, there is a person who is greater than me who desires to reign and rule over my heart and to make all things new. That's what Jesus does. He makes all things new. And so God points Cornelius away from his performance to the perfect performance of Jesus, and God does the same thing to us. Now, there's a second man we meet as well, this guy named Peter. Now, many of you are familiar with Peter because uh, you know, he's a pretty well-known guy from the Bible times. He followed Jesus. He was one of the disciples. Uh, if you've been with us in the series, you know he was kind of the leader of this movement. as one of the apostles sent out to multiply this movement to the ends of uh, the earth. And um, what's interesting is simultaneously to uh, Cornelius having this vision, Peter is having a, a vision as well. It's actually the next day. And, and the major thing that Peter is trying to overcome, you think... Oh, You know, you're an apostle. You should have your entire act together. Everybody in the Bible is severely flawed other than the person of Jesus, even even the leaders of the movement. And what Peter had to overcome was the uh, tradition of culture, the tradition of culture. And, And when I say that, Peter was a Jewish man. And in Jewish culture, basically the way it worked was what we believe determines what God believes. God, or, or culture, what we believe, what we say is right or wrong, determines what God says is right and wrong. Culture reigns over God instead of God reigning over culture. And where that tangibly manifests itself, well, we'll see it right here, is that the Jewish culture said there are certain races that God loves, and there are certain races God does not love. There are certain peoples that are clean, and there are certain peoples that are unclean. If it sounds a lot like racism, you've identified it. It's awful. 
It's atrocious. And Peter, being raised in this environment, had actually absorbed this way of thinking. And God comes and gives him a vision to set the record straight. Now, look what happens. God gives him this vision. I want you to look at verse 11 to kind of get the details of this vision. Verse 11. So Peter, he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of reptile, uh, animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean did not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up once to heaven. Now, what is going on when God just shows a bunch of reptiles and amphibians and like eat these things, right? Like how is a profound theological point being made here? But, but here's what's going on. What you have to understand, what you already know, is there's an inseparable link in our minds between types of food and types of people, right? So this is kind of like a, let's, let's do some audience participation to kind of get things up here, okay? So if I said uh, fish and chips, you would think of British people, right? If I said the Cracker Barrel, you would think of... Southern people, right? Right, exactly. So, so we all understand there's links between types of food and types of people. Now, now hold that truth in your mind because what, what the line of reasoning God brings to Peter is just like you should be able to eat anything because it's all made by me. Don't call anything unclean because it's all been made by me. So you shouldn't call anybody of another race unclean because they're all made by me as well. See, Peter thought his entire life, you know, I can't interact with these people of another race because that's what my culture says. And if that's what my culture says, that's what God says. Or God steps in and says, no, 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 no. You've got it completely backwards. Your culture is not meant to reign over what I say is right or wrong. I'm meant to reign over what the culture believes is right and wrong. Now, I don't know if that feels relevant, but here's the deal. Is that a story like this on the front end doesn't feel like it has much for us because us as a culture, I mean, we don't condone racism, Right? I mean, that's like the one sin that our culture blanketly condemns, which, which is a good thing. I'm pro that. But, but what's easy is to hear that and to see that and to read that and think, this has nothing for me whatsoever. And you're missing the larger point. All of us have a propensity to let the culture we were raised in reign over God as opposed to let God reign over the culture. Let me just give you a couple ways. Uh, I see this maybe in American culture uh, in a much more relevant way. Uh, the first way I would say this is I would say uh, we believe because we live in a democracy, God is establishing a democracy. Okay? Because we live in a democracy, God is establishing a democracy. Let me, let me kind of tell you how this plays out. Now, uh, we live in a democracy, so everybody has a vote, and everybody has a say, and I'm pro that uh, as well. I'm, you know, I'm a good American. I eat my hot dogs on the 4th of July. So, so I'm pro that. But what happens is we tend to think because we live in a democratic society, God has to submit himself to that democratic society. So, so you know how this plays out? This plays out when the Bible teaches something about morality that we as a culture are not very fond of. So, so Jesus teaches something maybe about sexuality, maybe about money, maybe about family, maybe about work, uh, some of the most personal areas of our lives. And then you know what we do? It's almost like we take a vote and then we go back to Jesus and we're like, hey, Jesus... Um, I know what you taught about sex, but we voted, and I don't know how to put this, but you're wrong. 
And if you could, like, change your opinion, this would be a lot less awkward because then we could, like, all be on the same page. We, we do that with morality all the time. I hear people do that with just even who God is. I hear people talk like, I like to think of God as being more loving. I like to think that God wouldn't send anybody to hell. I like to think that God wouldn't judge anybody. And whenever I hear people talking that way, I think of that scene from Talladega Nights, uh, the Ballad of Ricky Bobby, where they're sitting around the table. I don't know if any of you have seen this. It won't make any sense if you haven't. But they're sitting around the table. And, uh, and they're just like, I like to think of Jesus as a figure skater doing an interpretive dance of my life. I like to think of Jesus wearing a tuxedo T-shirt saying, you know, uh, I'm formal, but I'm here to party. And I was just like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You know, you don't just get to be like, well, we took a vote and God, we decided you need to be less judgmental. So be less judgmental. Like, oh, OK, well, if you guys voted on it, then, yeah, you're right. I will change the character and nature of who I have been since the beginnings of the earth. Uh, no, no, no. We do this. All the time. And what you need to understand is some of the first words that Jesus uttered out of his mouth when he began his ministry is, Behold, I am bringing the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's a monarchy. And a monarchy has a king. There's no kingdom without a king. And Jesus Christ is that man who is meant to reign and rule over our hearts. Let me tell you, you need this. I know you want to push back against this, and I know you want to figure out your notion of right or wrong based largely around what seems to make the most sense to you, but we need this. You have made so many terrible decisions, and what has ignited that terrible decision is this makes complete sense. This is going to go well for me. I mean, haven't we done that enough times to see we do not have the resume to reign and rule over our hearts, but Jesus Christ does, and it's why he is the king. Not just merely one more vote. So, so, so that's the first one I see. I see a lot of times we're a democracy. So God, you're, you're part of that democracy as well. The second I see is because um, my priority, because our priority is prosperity. God's priority for me is prosperity as well. Okay? Because, because my priority for my life is prosperity. God's priority for my life is prosperity as well. Now, um, it really doesn't take much kind of awareness to recognize we are bombarded with a message of prosperity all the time. Am I right? So like, um, look at the movies we see, look at what's on TV, look at the reality shows, look at the magazines as you're checking out at the grocery store and, and everything is saying you need more. You deserve more, more love, more money, more stuff, bigger house, be happier. You deserve it. You earn it. Put it on credit. You don't worry about it. Your kids will pay it off. It's not that big of a deal. What's And we think that because that's what our culture says is the picture of success, then God is blessing me when he is giving me the stuff I want. He is cursing me when he is not giving me the stuff I want. And I'm just, to be honest with you, that is the furthest thing from the truth. Now, I'm not saying if you make a good living, there's something wrong with you or unspiritual about you. I mean, I think that if you work hard and you perform well, you're going to make a really good living. I mean, we already talked about that. We talked about that last week as well. But here's the deal. Is that if the men and the women in this book believe that God's priority in their lives was prosperity, security, and comfort, this book never gets written. It's that simple. It's that simple. Because you know, the people who the movement was built upon, the people whose backs carried this movement from its very beginning, were the people who left family, who people who forsake money, for people who risked danger, and the vast majority of them died, like in their 20s and 30s and 40s, like our age, like we're such a young, our age for this movement, for this movement. See, for you who think that priority or, or, or prosperity is God's greatest priority in your life, you put 
such an unfair burden upon yourself. I mean, here's the deal is you can make a lot of money and God could be really far from you and, and you could make nothing. Your life could be falling apart and God could be so near because you know the greatest gift God gives you, it is not stuff. He offers you himself. He offers you himself. And let me just say to some of you, I mean, in an urban church, we are a magnet for people with really broken lives, with really messy stories. And let me tell you something, if that's you. If that's you and you are weeping this week, if that's you and you're struggling to make it just from paycheck to paycheck to survive it, you're not sure what happens if you get laid off. If that's you who struggled having a baby, if that's you who struggled to kind of find your place and you haven't been in healthy relationships, if that's you who has a history of abuse, let me tell you something. God is not cursing you. He is drawing near to you because in those moments of sadness and weeping and desperation and brokenness, we lean on him. And we recognize our insufficiency and he makes himself so tangible and real and he offers himself himself the greatest gift he could ever give. There is something so much better than money and security. and comfort. It is God. It is God offering us himself and do not project our view onto him. So here's the deal is that if you were raised in a family and a culture that encourage a certain dysfunctional path, if you were raised in a family and a culture that enslaved you, why would you let those things reign over the God who desires to liberate you? Does that make any sense whatsoever? And yet we do this all the time. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. I I just want to challenge you practically to understand there are going to be some times this week, this month, this year, 10 years from now, where in some of the most personal areas of your life, I'm talking about sex and dating and relationships and your job and money and family and security. I'm talking about the areas of life that are really hard to believe and really hard to obey. There are going to be some areas where your culture is wrong. There are going to be some areas where your family was wrong. There's going to be some areas where you're wrong. And what I want to challenge you to is in that moment where what God clearly teaches comes head to head with your preferences, with your family's preferences, with your culture's preferences. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. It's pretty simple, but so many people struggle with it. Let God win. Let God win. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult and you're going to be angry and you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be wondering what if. But here's the deal. Let God win because he is the only person in the universe who relentlessly fights for your joy. Even when you sacrifice and even when you suffer and even when it's hard and even when it's uncomfortable, he is fighting and laboring for your joy. He is meant to be the king. And and Peter does that in this situation. It's hard to imagine because you never think our culture would be like that. It was like that just a few decades ago. It's like that in plenty of parts, not just in the country, but in Denver as well. And Peter says, okay, my entire life I've been raised to believe this. And God's like this. Now I'm going to flip it around and God is going to reign over my understanding of what is right and wrong in my own life. And so what we have is this incredible intersection where God uses Peter to in some ways convert Cornelius God uses Cornelius in some ways to reveal truth to Peter. And they actually have this, this conversation at the very end of the story I, I just want to talk about um, before, we're, before we're done. And um, here, here's what you see when they talk. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of the entire Bible. And it's, it's not going to seem that spectacular, but hopefully I'll, I'll show you why it is. Um, what you're going to see is the fruits 
of the victory that Jesus gives us, okay? So, so Jesus, he steps in and he frees us from these negative traditions. And what you're going to see are just two simple fruits that if, if you're willing to really go through with this, are going are to blossom in your life. Now, the first is you're going to be fully transformed by Jesus, fully changed, fully made new by Jesus. And, and skip down in this story. Peter and Cornelius are now having a conversation. Look at verse 28. Um, verse 28. This is Peter talking. It says, And Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Right? So you know how my culture and my family and my upbringing have told me to walk down this path. But look what he says next. But God, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter, his entire life was raised to walk down a certain path by his family, by his environment, by his upbringing, by his culture. It had been like that to the detriment of that society for multiple generations. He said, this was the path I was supposed to walk down. But God, but God has blazed a brand new trail and he is writing a brand new story with my life. Let me just be super practical here. Here's the deal is that for many of you, when you think about your, your family's history, the generations that you come from, the mistakes your grandparents made, your parents made, the environment that you grew up in, mistakes that you've made in your own life, for many of you, you mistakenly believe that your destiny is already sealed. You mistakenly believe that, that I am nothing more than the product of my environment and upbringing and DNA, and I'm nothing more than a statistic doomed to replicate the mistakes of my forefathers and of my past. And let me tell you something. That is not true. That is not true. Here's Peter saying, my entire life I was told to walk down this path and I'm blazing a new trail. And I'm telling you, you can do the exact same thing as well through the power of the gospel. You really, really can. So even if you grew up where your parents had the most dysfunctional marriage you could ever imagine, you are not doomed to a marriage of dysfunction. Even if you grew up in a culture of addiction, even if that's your story, even if you've replicated addiction again and again and again, relapse after relapse after relapse, that doesn't mean that's what your future is. Your past does not determine your future in the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ does. And he is trying to rewrite your story so you can blaze a brand new trail. You are not a slave to your DNA. You are not a slave to your past. You are not a slave to your upbringing. You are not a slave to culture. You are a son or daughter in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, not only is that a fruit, but here's the deal. Not only the most incredible, uh, most uh, uh, fullest of transformation, but here's the the most incredible of opportunities for Jesus as well. So, so Jesus transforms us, and then he opens up the doors for the most incredible of opportunities. Now, look at verse 29. Um, here's what Peter says next to him. He says, so you sent for me. He, he sent for him. I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius responds, but verse 33 is really the heart of this response. He says, I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. And th now, therefore, we all are here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That may be my favorite verse in the entire book of Acts. And you're like, well, that doesn't seem that spectacular. But here's the deal. Do you realize what's going on in this scene? It's that Peter, the chief follower of Jesus, is now hanging out in the house of Cornelius, the commander of the Roman army that crucified Jesus. Now, if you killed the guy who leads my movement, and then you invite me over for coffee, I'm not RSVP, okay? Right? And you're not either. 
But here's the deal, is that when God brings the most astounding of personal transformations, he opens the door for the most incredible of opportunities as well. And that's just practically what you've got to understand. God is not going to bless you to this degree without making you a blessing as well. And so if you overcome addictions, if you overcome your family path, if you, if you write a different story with your life, people are want, going to want to know why. They're going to ask you, what does this all mean? And God is going to bless you for you to be a blessing to see the same sort of victory trickle into the lives, lives of the people around you that, that, care about, that you care about the most. Let me wrap this up. Um, let, let me just maybe just tell you where, where I see us headed and, and then we'll be done with this. Um, the, be, the best way to kind of capture what I think is going to happen for many of you is, um, have, have any of you seen the movie The Truman Show? Let me, can I get like a nod or, yeah, okay, good. So half of you, so. We'll see how this goes. Um, if you haven't seen The Truman Show, um, it's actually, I think it's Jim Carrey's best movie, other than Dumb and Dumber, of course. But, um, but in, in The Truman Show, uh, Truman is in a reality show, and he doesn't know it, right? So he's got, like, his entire life scripted for him to say, like, this is what you're going to do, and this is what your family is going to do, and uh, this is what your future will look like, and you're not going to go down this path. You're going to go down this path as well, right? All, all of you kind of know how this goes if you've seen it. And, um, and all of a sudden, he wakes up one day, and he realizes like, my story is being written for me. And if you remember he, this big dramatic scene, he sails across the ocean and he gets to the edge of the world that the TV company created for him. And uh, he, he walks through an exit door. Do you remember that? He, he walks through an exit door but right before he says, you know, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. And he walks through. And what's being communicated, what's so powerful about that movement is like, here, here's a guy who's had his entire life architected for something sad. And he has now been liberated and is walking through this door and he's going to write a whole different story with his life. Let me tell you, that's going to happen for some of you. It is happening for some of you. Some of you are in this room and you're the least likely people to be in this room. Some of you are doing things now and if your college friends or if your high school friends, if your family knew the way you were loving Jesus and serving the church and the way you were obeying him in the most difficult of areas, they would just be like, what happened to you? Did you get a lobotomy? Are you a whole new person? What, what exactly went down? But some of you are doing this. You are writing a whole new story with your life. You are breaking free of the script that was imposed upon you that was so unhealthy by your culture and by your family and by your past experiences and mistakes. And some of you can do that. I just want to tell you, you can do that. I know this is one of those areas that if you've been really wrestling with something personal and difficult and it's hard and it just almost sounds too good to be true, let me, let me just tell you, as somebody who's personally experienced, it's not too good to be true. It's too good for us to deserve, but God gifts it to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so like Peter and like Cornelius and like me and like anybody else who's a follower of Jesus in this room, you if you're kind of on the brink of figuring out where exactly do I stand with Jesus and what are my action steps and where do I go from here, you can experience the breaking of negative traditions as well. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray. But here, as we pray and as we sing and as we close out tonight, here's what I just kind of want to challenge you to think about. Um, for those of you who have been believers, even that's a week, maybe that's 20 years, what I really want to challenge you to think about and to marvel at is where is this happening in your life? Like, where can you just give thanks to God for this happening in your life? And I love that Peter says, I was told my entire life to go this way, but God has shown me I should go this way. Where is that happening for you? Where does that need to happen for you? Where do you start believing that it's possible for you? And here's the deal. For those of you who are not followers of Jesus and you're trying to figure out your next step, um, what I would just 
what I would just challenge you to do is as we pray and as we sing, is I would just challenge you, I would challenge you to just pray to God. And I would just challenge you to ask him to reveal to you, is this or is this not too good to be true? I mean, look, if I'm up here doing nothing but kind of just blowing smoke, um, you should leave here and nothing should change. But if what I'm saying about Jesus is true, everything should change. Everything should change. What I want to challenge for those of you who are on the brink and trying to figure out next steps and should I join the church and should I get baptized is not about what I say, but who do you say that Jesus is? And if you can really do this in your life, what is your next step to believing, following, and obeying him? So let's think about that as we pray and as we sing. Why don't you pray? And, um, and then we'll worship through song. God, we thank you so much that you are the one who steps in and writes brand new stories in our lives. Christianity is not for we who have performed perfectly, but for we who have messed up so many times, we finally recognize our performance is inadequate. And God, it's from that posture, the fact it's from our posture that we will never be good enough for you, that we rejoicingly receive and accept the free gift of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for Jesus living for us, dying for us, resurrecting for us, and we thank you that in that heart of the gospel, there's nothing mentioned about us because there's nothing in us that could earn this incredible gift. And so, God, I pray um, for the Christians in this room that we would not just be aware of that or be uh, amazed by that, but we would really apply that to our lives. And we would even ask ourselves, I mean, where is the area of our life, the areas of our lives where we said our entire life, I was encouraged to walk down this path, but God has shown me another way. God, let us rejoice and receive those areas of our life. God, I pray for the uh, the men and women here who are trying to figure out just what does it look like to be part of a church and part of a spiritual community and who you are. And uh, More than anything, I just pray as, as we pray and as we worship and as we sing that you would make yourself so real to them so that they could tangibly possess not just the joy that you have for them but the victory over the most practical, tangible, difficult areas of our lives. God, please do that. And we ask these things in your powerful, powerful name.